LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Samuel Alexander, who joins us to discuss his new book, Entropia. When industrial civilization collapsed in the third decade of the 21st century, a community living on a small island in the South Pacific found itself permanently isolated from the rest of the world. With no option but to build a self-sufficient economy with very limited energy supplies, this community set about creating a simpler way of life that could flourish deep into the future. Determined above all else to transcend the materialistic values of the old world, they made a commitment to live materially simple lives, convinced that this was the surest path to genuine freedom, peace, and sustainable prosperity. Seven decades later, in the year 2099, Entropia describes the results of their remarkable living experiment. Hello and welcome, Sam, and thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, Sam, today we're going to discuss your new book, uh, Entropia, Life Beyond Industrial Civilization. Um, perhaps to get us started, you could just give us a little bit of your uh, background and how you actually uh, came to write the book. I moved to Melbourne from New Zealand in 2006 to begin my PhD in uh, Melbourne Law School of all places. And as I undertook my doctoral studies, I moved more away from um, legal study and more into interdisciplinary analyses. And I got uh, interested in uh, limits to growth uh, analysis in particular and sustainable consumption and energy issues. And over the last few years, I've been writing uh, mainly academic papers and books through uh, an institution called the Simplicity Institute, where we focus on trying to flesh out the, the details of what a post-growth, uh, radically simple, low-energy, low resource consumption society would look like. And through that academic work, I began getting interested more in the envisioning process because it's all very well to lay down long essays and heavily footnoted uh, academic treaties. Um, and, and another thing to try to, um, which I think is an essential part of the um, debate, obviously, it has to be rigorous and the evidential foundations of an alternative society and rigorous in analyzing how to theorize the transition and to work out the best strategy for transitioning to an alternative, just, sustainable society. But I felt somewhat constricted by the conventions of academic writing uh, and am aware, as any academic is, that some people like reading academic literature, most people don't. And I felt the importance of the issues um, were such that I should at least try to 
write a bit more creatively and in, a bit more in an attempt to engage a, a broader audience with these issues that I'm convinced are important. And that led me to dare to write a book, which in a sense is, I'm finding it hard to classify when people ask me what type of book Entropia is, because it's fiction, but it isn't a novel as such. And that is where the dilemma lies in how I explain it, because it's essentially pitched from the future, it's set in 2099, and um, looking back and describing a society that arose after the collapse of industrial civilization, and try to almost document, you know, the culture, the economy, the politics, the spirituality of this low consumption, low energy society, rather than a, a conventional novel by any sense, even though it is fiction. The premise of the book, really, as you've been outlining, is the the sort of what I call the myth of progress, really, which is the idea that for industrial civilization, that it's onwards and upwards to a glorious techno utopian future. But really, the evidence all around us, staring us in the face everywhere we look, is that that's not going to happen. And I think what your book does is it reminds us of that, but it also says that the future doesn't have to be um, apocalyptically bleak that we can we are in control of our destiny um, whatever we say about you know what's happening to the climate and the environment we do have a lot of choices here and it's really about the path that we choose to take from this point onwards yeah as you would have seen by reading it it takes quite a broad big picture perspective uh, and it begins in the in the chapter two, where we get into the sort of the critique of industrial civilization, that it, you know, sketches the evolution of human civilization briefly, obviously, but looking at the progress of our consumption habits and practices in particular, and obviously when people are desperately poor, when people are hungry, when people don't have enough clothes, when people are cold, they want, they want more stuff, and by acquiring more stuff, more food, warmer clothing better shelter, access to basic medical um, care and this type of thing, that tends to Im improve people's lives. And what that gives rise to is the assumption that further material gains will also produce uh, continuing sort of quality of life increases. And the both, you know, for thousands of years in the philosophical traditions and more recently in the social sciences and the, the empirical studies, there's this interesting body of work that suggests that while increasing income at low levels of income does increase our quality of life, there comes a point, a surprisingly low point, where that correlation fades, whereby getting richer beyond the point stops contributing to our quality of life or our well-being. And yet, civilization still seems to be entrenched in a model that assumes that in order to improve our lives, in order to improve our society, and in order to progress as a nation or as a culture or as a human community, we need to continually get richer in a material sense. And for some time, there was some grounds for thinking that that was a, an appropriate model to govern our economies, our societies. Our cultures, but there have now been decades of research to suggest that that correlation between wealth and well-being has begun to fade and has now begun to turn back on itself. The problem is that 
it's very difficult to get out of that mindset. When things seem to be going wrong, the assumption remains, well, we need more to fix those problems. It doesn't dawn on many people to think that, well, perhaps the growth model as it once applied no longer applies. We've had for generations, children have grown up thinking that they're going to be better off materially than their parents. And, you know, in some sense, that's a nice vision, you know, that is that has been the traditional conception of progress. But that is now, as you say, the myth of progress insofar as it could be that we have either reached the limits to growth economically or have already yeah, have already reached or will soon reach the limits to growth, suggesting that material affluence can no longer be what defines progress and, in fact, that the aspiration of globalizing affluence, while once it may have seemed like a legitimate and worthwhile endeavor in an empty world, in a world of 7 billion people, the goal of globalizing affluence strikes me and many others as a suicide pact because we have not just reached the limits of growth ecologically, but according to the latest ecological footprint analyses, it suggests that we, as a global economy, has have exceeded the sustainable carrying capacity of the planet by 50%. If that's so, if the global economy has already exceeded the sustainable carrying capacity of the planet, and we know that there are billions of people who still want to increase their material standards of living just to provide for a, a minimal but dignified material standard of living, and we know that the world's population is looking like it's going to reach 9 or 10 billion in the next 40 or 50 or 60 years, that's putting so much more pressure on an already overburdened ecosystem. Uh, so... Nothing could be clearer that we need to rethink the gro the growth model, and yet at the same time, especially in the political realm, that is a policy option that people dare not speak of. It's just off the something that important that uh, a fundamental change away from the growth model is necessary, and yet our politicians dare not mention it. No, this is basically relevant here. Is uh... Uh, Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs and one of the problems we have at the minute is just as we're reaching a sort of a, a resource and energy crunch in the industrial world you know half the world probably more than half the world they haven't got the fridge yet they haven't got the car you know they haven't got the lawnmower they haven't got the holidays and there's incredible pressure there I mean we think of a lot of Latin America and, and China in particular uh, India to a degree there's a lot of pent-up demand there and the feeling that you know we want our sort of 15 minutes we want our time in the sun and that in itself whatever sort of dawning realizations there are in the developed world about some of the issues that we face there are incredible pressures in the developing world absolutely and why why shouldn't there be in a sense um, it's it's obviously plain unjust for the global north to say consumer lifestyles are unsustainable for 7 billion people so we can live it but you can't and given that there are so many people living in extreme poverty when they look at the the north american or the british or the western european or the australian lifestyles it's obvious why they would prefer the material comforts that many of us enjoy compared to the poverty that they experience so 
although this is a generalization, what needs to happen at, at a very broad level is not so much that the, the West or the global North just says the rest of the world cannot have what we have as a material sense. What I feel needs to happen is that we need to transition away from these lifestyles very quickly. And it's not so much telling the rest of the world that they cannot develop or they cannot progress, but they need to understand, as we need to understand, that globalizing first world lifestyles is simply unsustainable. It's no good saying, well, the first world has it, therefore the world must be allowed to have it. I think what needs to happen is that we need to try to develop some conception of one planet living. And part of my point with for writing the Entropia book was to actually try to provide some more detail on what one planet living might actually look like. Because notions of sustainable development, while perhaps necessary in 1987 when the, the term entered the international lexicon and brought environmental issues into the public debate, um, it's pretty clear by now that sustainable development is so vague a term, so imprecise that it can be essentially be used to mean anything and therefore nothing, and it has lost any critical bite in the sense of trying to direct public policy. And there is, as you mentioned earlier, this notion of the myth of progress and sustainable development has become infected with that myth of progress in the sense that people still, many people assume that we can globalize affluence and that technology and efficiency gains are going to somehow allow us to continually expand that high consumption way of life and yet reduce ecological impact at the same time. Empirically, that is highly questionable and in most cases false and it certainly shouldn't be the faith upon which we shape our global agenda. So by writing Entropia, as I said, what I was trying to do is to actually take a harder look at what one planet living actually consists of because it's too easy to say, well, we can still live these high consumption lifestyles and, and technology will just help dematerialize our lifestyles or decouple our lifestyles from ecological impact. So far as that isn't happening, it means that we need to rethink the levels of consumption and that's where I think people have many obstacles in, in the way of their imagination when it comes to trying to envision what a truly sustainable material culture would look like. So in Entropia, as both, especially in the early chapters, chapters three and four, chapter three I talk about the material conditions and in chapter four I talk about the potential of a both low consumption but also high quality of life existence. And I think that's one of the, the main points that I want people to take away from the book is that there is, everybody wants their material needs met. Nobody wants to be hungry, nobody wants to be cold. When people are sick, they want access to medical attention, that type of thing. That my, my argument in, in favor of material simplicity doesn't contradict that. I'm not arguing for poverty. What I'm arguing is for, as I say in the book, enough for everyone forever. And that implies, in my view, actually quite a radically low or moderate would be perhaps a better word, material standard of living. And it may shock people when they read chapter two and uh, chapter three in particular, where I describe in some detail the material way of life on, on the island of Entropia. Uh, but 
again, in the next chapter where I describe, well, how do they receive this low material standard of living, I try to explain why life can still be very good despite humble material conditions. Yes, I think a lot of the language about uh, when people do talk about sustainability or post-industrial civilization, it it gets couched in terms of um, lack, you know, what we're going to lose, what we're going to have to give up. And undoubtedly, you know, things do need to change, but it can be still pitched in a very negative way, such that in people's imagination, it just means entirely negative outcomes, you know, less of everything. And there's not so much focus perhaps on what we would gain, you know, materially or otherwise. And just to to explain to folks, um, the scenario in in your book is that there's a character called Mortimer Flynn, who is a wealthy industrialist, and he um, establishes a island community as a sort of experiment to see if um, the sort of sustainable living that we're talking about is really achievable. And it's interesting at the start of it all, when he uh, the community is established, that imports are obviously needed to get things up and running. Um, modern systems of uh, energy, there's complex machinery, there's infrastructures constructed to modern standards and with imported materials and technology. And this kind of, this is an interesting scenario because in one sense, it kind of reflects where we are now because to go to try and transition into a post-industrial uh, civilization, we're not starting from scratch. I mean, that scenario in the book says that we couldn't start from scratch, but we don't need to. We do have a lot of technology and a lot of materials that we can use. It's just a question of how they are used and whether on what basis, whether they are, it is sustainable or not. Yeah, I use the term deindustrial economy. Uh, to make that point that uh, if it's the case that we have reached the limits of growth and from now on or soon uh, there may be a, contr- uh, a prolonged contraction of the, of the global economy or certain parts of the economy, <clears throat> it doesn't change the fact that, as you said, there is this huge, vast stock of industrially produced goods which is going to remain, a term that uh, I quite enjoy from... I got from uh, John Michael Greer, who I believe you interviewed. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I've had John on a couple of times. Actually, there's a lot of a lot of parallels with um, you know his work and what you're doing. Yeah, so he he uses the term and others use the term salvage economy to suggest that when people start not being able to have the funds to just say run down to the hardware store to buy some more wood or you know, run to the store to buy some more clothes you start looking around and realizing that there is an abundance of material goods available for us to refashion or retrofit or to rethink somehow. And we find that our needs can be met in kind of post-consumer ways. It's not a matter of running down to the shop and buying something new. It's about finding that maybe somebody else's waste becomes your treasure or instead of buying the clothes, you find some fabric and sew your own, or these types of ways of rethinking our consumption practices and perhaps moving away from the consumer model and more towards the, the producer model. Well, this is also not something that really uh, has no precedent. This is something that was only recently uh, been abandoned. I mean, to some extent, uh, my parents, uh, but certainly almost completely my grandparents were doing things like uh, repairing kettles and repairing washing machines 
and uh, you know stitching clothes if they you know got torn or came undone, um, you know rehealing their own shoes, that type of thing. And uh, you know it's only relatively recently that things have become become either so inexpensive that they're virtually disposable, or basically that they're not designed to be fixed. I spoke with a, a colleague recently who'd bought a uh, quite an expensive uh, coffee machine and um, something had gone wrong with that. And he uh, got in touch with the manufacturers because he's quite handy and uh, he wanted to get the schematics for it so he could try and fix it. And they refused. They point blank refused. So his yeah. only option was, you know, either to take it apart and have a go, <laughs> uh, throw it in landfill yeah. uh, and pay another whatever it was, 150, 200 pounds for a new machine. It was a bizarre mentality. It's one yeah. thing for a, uh, to, to you know, maybe not want to repair a kettle that costs five pounds, but for an expensive piece of kit like that. But it really spoke of the mentality, you know, the disposable, uh, chuck it away, yeah. get a new yeah. one that we have. The... Yeah, so many examples of that type of thing too. i got a friend who was trying to... Uh, explore that type of um you know fixing rather than throwing away idea and he he gathered sort of five toasters together and tried to find an electrician or a sort of a, a fixer who would uh, who once would have done this and he and given that they're so cheap now um to pay somebody to work on it for an hour you could have bought two more toasters so he found that that, that type of uh job had disappeared because you know nobody would pay thirty dollars to fix a toaster if you could buy two new ones for 15 um and they he also found that there were screws in the uh, toaster that were specific to a particular type of um screwdriver so not a phillips head or a flathead that everyone has in their in their shed, but a they they design a, a unique screw so that people can't get into it, you know, for the very purpose that you're talking about, you know, designed obsolescence, you know, it's easier to throw away and there's more profit in the short term for businesses if they get more people throwing away than fixing it. It's bizarre, and our people in the future are going to look back and be very confused. Perhaps the, the ultimate example of that is um, the case now that it very often, if not you know, it, every time, uh, when computer printers, it's actually cheaper to buy a new printer than it is to buy the uh, cartridge refills for the ink. So even though the, car the, the ink that comes with the printer won't last as long as a separately bought refill, it's just a bizarre state of affairs however i have noticed uh, that this is gradually beginning to change now you wouldn't know it looking at the mainstream media because they don't like to report these things but i've noticed the increasing rise of um repair centers are called which is basically um mostly voluntary and it's people coming together who are concerned about these issues and they bring together people with skills you know handy handymen electricians carpenters whatever and they encourage people to come along with their, you know, broken or faulty items. And they'll do the bit, whatever they can to try and fix people's, um, you know, gear, whatever it happens to be. The notion of reskilling ties in with the transition movement. And we may have an opportunity to talk about that further later. But the transition movement, part of it is about trying to you know, reskill, learn to do things ourselves, repair things ourselves, build things ourselves, grow things ourselves. 
fix things ourselves in a way that our grandparents just did as a as a matter of necessity and as a as a, as a culture. And it's not so much about an attempt to return to the past, but it's about sort of taking the best parts of um, that type of self reliance and self sufficiency and using those skills to navigate the uncertain future. Yeah, no, you mentioned um, a few minutes ago the notion of efficiency, and one of the paradoxes about increasing efficiency is that it actually also increases consumption, if we think in terms of fuel or energy. Uh, so increased efficiency is a really a double-edged sword. I mean, yes, we certainly want things to be more efficient, but there is that, that issue has to be t- you know, taken into account that it's not just a matter of achieving greater efficiency and that and is going to you know, lead to falling energy use. The opposite is true. And also the issue of technology, which is often cited as um, you know, where our salvation is going to come from. As John Michael Greer points out, technology is not energy. And that's really at the nub of this uh, energy is the lifeblood of civilization. And, you know, in our case, in our industrial civilization, that means fossil fuels. And whether you subscribe to the information in the peak oil theory or not, we're clearly running into, um, how should we say, issues <laughs> around fossil fuels in terms of like what we can easily get our hands on. And again, whether you subscribe to the theory of, uh, you know, man-made climate change, global warming, call it what you will, there are palpable problems with pollution, uh, which are just, you know, you can't discuss those away. They're there. Absolutely. And uh, the notion that energy is the lifeblood of civilization is an interesting one because it's a reminder that we need energy to solve our problems. Like life presents problems. It always has presented problems. And in order to solve those problems, almost always human beings use energy. And that makes the transition away from a high energy consumption lifestyle problematic or at least challenging because it requires rethinking how we direct our more limited energy supplies. And it may be that we have less energy through the peaking and eventual decline of oil inevitable at some stage the question the debate is over when that will be and how quickly the descent will be and even if as you say people don't subscribe to a near-term peak in oil we need to decarbonize very quickly for the reasons of climate change so decarbonization is a pretty clear and necessary part of any transition to a sustainable society but highly challenging for the reason that currently you know we use energy to to solve our pro- problems, even if the use of that energy can also cause those problems. Yeah, well, there's a phrase you have in the book talking about the early days of the island community of Entropia, and that is that uh, many of our attempts to build resilience were really little more than pleasant, well-intentioned games. And that kind of struck a chord really as being very much sounding like a lot of the attempts at uh, you know greening the economy and energy systems that we have now, because a lot of people, I think, with one eye on the mainstream media would imagine that, yes, environmental issues and issues of energy consumption are not being dealt with fast enough, but something is being done. You know, they, in inverted commas, are doing something when if you actually look at the data, energy consumption, CO2 output, what have you, they're actually increasing year on year, despite all the meetings, all the initiatives, everything we hear about in the media, 
that's increasing year on year. I think a lot of people will be quite surprised to discover that. Yeah, and um, one of the more striking analyses that have come out of the climate science research recently, I think it came out of the Potsdam Institute, and they tried to assess a carbon. They tried to quantify a carbon budget, and which which means that they tried to say, well, how much carbon can we put into the atmosphere and still have a uh, 80% chance of keeping global warming under two degrees. And they, I won't try to draw the exact figures out of my head, but it's something like a third or a fifth of known reserves is the budget, which means that a, a great percentage of the existing fossil fuels that we have already found can't be burnt if we had to have an 80% chance of avoiding the two degrees threshold. And I guess, you know, that that raises the question of, well, how are we going to do that? And who is going to burn the remaining carbon budget? Because there is a, a case can be made that the poorest parts of the world have a greater title, in a sense, to burning that fossil fuels, given that the the rich world has squandered so much and is responsible historically for the vast majority of carbon emissions. The developing nations over the last decade or two have certainly caught up in terms of, uh, you know, with China and India and Brazil and nations industrializing very quickly. They're, they're playing their part now in carbon emissions, certainly. But if we, if we were to try to stick to that carbon budget, there's a small fraction of existing reserves that can be burnt. And that raises exceedingly complicated moral and ethical issues about how that budget is going to be distributed. The pragmatic and the, the realist in me says that, well, the richest and the most powerful are going to burn that share because that's what the richest and powerful have historically done. But as a matter of moral philosophy or ethical evaluation, a case can be made that not only do we have to transition away from fossil fuel intensive economic practices very quickly, but you know the rich world should be taking the lead on the basis that historically they have emitted so much more than the rest of the world. Yes, I did a, I'd refer listeners to a recent interview I did with uh, Mike Berners-Lee and uh, about his recent book, uh, The Burning Question. And that the revelation in there, which again will be news to a lot of people, is that as you point out, there's a huge um, cache of fossil fuels still in the ground. And depending on whose figures you believe, we have to actually walk away from that. And that is an immense problem. It's a bit like, because the mentality is a bit like, say you've got you know, an alcoholic who decides to turn over a new leaf, but in his house, there's a bottle of whiskey in the cupboard. And the attitude is almost like, well, I am going to kick the booze, but you know what? I'll just drink that bottle of whiskey. So there's no booze in the house. So I won't be tempted. Yeah. Exactly how we're going to get out of this mess uh, is not clear to me. Um, and I guess the book makes it pretty clear that I have a, I guess, a, a strange mix of pessimism and optimism. Pessimism in the sense that I'm very aware that we've got ourselves into a hell of a lot of trouble. I'm not idealistic in the sense that I think that um, the transition away from industrial civilization is going to be smooth. It's almost certainly, in my view, going to be punctured, punctuated with crises and it may be that crises are what ends up being the catalyst for the social change and the political and economic changes that are necessary for the world to figure out how to live 
within one planet and to share its limited resources in a just and humane way. I think what we're more likely to see, rather than a rapid degeneration into some sort of uh, Mad Max type scenario, is that it's going to be periods of relative stability punctuated by periods of collapse and sudden degeneration. And then that will level out again. And then at some point, you know, maybe for maybe for decades, even for a generation, then there'll be another kind of decline uh, period of upheaval and so on down. So sort of like a, a step down process. Yeah, so there's a fascinating debate that's been taking place over the last few years between people like John Michael Greer, who is certainly of the, he calls it catabolic collapse, and that's sort of the stepwise decline. And his basis for that theory is that historically civilizations have deteriorated not over a few years, but over a few decades, even a century. And his view is that the decline of industrial civilization is going to be, with all its differences, is still going to follow a similar model of um, decline. Where there are others, such as Nicole Foss and Gail Tverberg and David Corowicz and others who think that there is something different about industrial civilization. There's something different about the global nature of and the and the sort of the just-in-time um sort of mechanisms of the global economy that make industrial civilization of a different mode, of a different character, um, historically significantly different from other civilizations to suggest that a faster and more tragic collapse could be awaiting us. Look, I can't see the future. Sometimes I think when people try to predict either theory too confidently, they are lacking in humility. Um, in the sense that there are so many variables at play that no mere mortal could actually envision or predict with any certainty how the next 20 or 40 or 60 or 80 or 100 years is going to play out. Um, but, you know, a part of me thinks that it may be more towards the John Michael Greer type of scenario where, because like some of Greer's work is that he says, well, civilizations have sort of a, mechanism for adjusting to even significant crises. Um, it's not a matter of just things all shattering at the first sign of a, of a crisis. There's sort of a, a response time where uh, a civilization or a society will assess the crisis, try to adjust, as you say, stabilize, um, and then find itself in another crisis at some stage in the future where they then respond again, and it becomes this sort of stepwise decline rather than a sort of a, a instantaneous or very quick collapse as such so who knows well in terms of how we got here um looking at the big picture there's a few uh, of the key systems underpinning human societies that you analyze in the book and you know the inhabitants of the island how they learn to do things differently and one of the key turning points no doubt in development of uh, society as we have it now, um, industrial or otherwise, really, it was the development of agriculture. And you mentioned in the book, uh, you know, from the perspective of hunter-gatherers, the transition to agriculture wasn't, didn't appear to be such an obvious advance, because certainly in the early days of agriculture, people found themselves fixed in one place, which is, you know, good, good or bad, depending on your perspective, but actually working a lot harder uh, whereas hunter-gatherers, you know, were spending 
two, three hours a day, really um, hunting or gathering. Really, you know, the, 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 the men who hunted would spend a little bit more time than the women who gathered, but, but not a lot. And you posit the question, was agriculture possibly a mistake? And there's a lot of literature along these lines, uh, whether because you know, that was the thing, arguably, that facilitated the explosion uh, in human population. Yeah, so in the book I try to paint the agricultural revolution not so much as a revolution in food production but as a revolution in energy supply. And that leads into the, you know, the entire book is really pitched in terms of looking at, you know, human life and civilization and economic activity in particular in terms of energy. And in the book I try very quickly to sort of raise that point about agriculture being a, a means of acquiring more energy. Um, and what they did for the first time was to allow the emergence of what some call non-food specialists. And because there was a farming group that was able to, like, like the, the, the significant difference between hunter-gathering and uh, agriculture, or one of the significant differences, is, is that agriculture is much more productive per acre. And that means that a smaller group of people can actually provide for a, um, a larger society and it allows that smaller group to be the food producers and that open that frees the rest of the uh, society to do other things. And at first that was those other things were things like building houses and making better weapons and building baskets and this type of thing. Um, which started creating power imbalances between the agricultural societies and the hunter-gatherer societies. The other thing about agriculture is that it gave the very strong incentive to become sedentary in the sense of non-nomadic. Um, and that also allowed or produced some very significant cultural changes in the sense that hunter-gatherers, the nomadic ones, uh, which was most of them, couldn't really carry much more than they could safely hold in their hands. Um, so there was no good them building houses. It's no good them building 10 types of tools or, or heavy weapons or this type of thing because either they couldn't carry all of that stuff around with them or if they could carry it, it made them slow and then prey to um, either other tribes or wild animals. But the, by agriculture... Uh, sort of fixing a community to the earth um, and them having to stay there for a while that sort of gave the incentive to build houses uh, to they were able to accumulate more it gave rise to notions of property rights and the property rights needed to be defended which gave rise to governments and states and police forces and um, <clears throat> it's interesting to think of that type of transition in terms of energy and agriculture was the first energy revolution really which did so much to change human civilization and in many ways it was conventionally classed as the the revolution that actually instituted civilization yeah you mentioned uh, housing the development of the the built environment and of course in the, the early days early civilizations you know perhaps a, a little collection of mud huts wouldn't really remove the inhabitants too far from you know, their immediate environment from nature as a whole. But 
that of course has changed over the millennia, over the uh, recent centuries, particularly uh, since, particularly since the industrial revolution, you know, with all the growth of the cities and a change in the situation where most people lived in rural uh, circumstances, and that does lead to a even a subconscious disconnect because it really is us, and then it's the rest of the world, and you know we have cut ourselves off. Yeah, and I guess the you know towards the end of the book, I talk of uh, how the disconnect from nature is arguably one of the precursors to the ecological crisis in so far as by being so distant from nature, by being inside so much, by not growing so much of our own food, by sitting in front of computers or iPads or iPhones and playing computer games, these these forms of technology or these ways of life disconnect us from the elements, from the seasons, our hands aren't in the soil. And insofar as we don't know nature, it makes it very hard to love nature and um and that makes it hard to care when, when, or to or to even see that our ways of life in the industrial world, in particular, are doing so much damage. And I certainly feel that, you know, in order to change our consciousness, our, our value systems, we need to find ways for our cultures to reconnect with nature, so that we sort of appreciate and and be enriched by that connection and. Um, you know, return to the idea that, uh, you know, it's, it's obvious that nature is the, the life support system upon which we all depend, upon which the entire community of life depends. And when you, when you understand that, it becomes obvious that ecological degradation is actually self-harm. But when you don't see that connection between the planet and our livelihood, then it's easier um, to um, degrade the planet and think that, you know, we'll be fine. Um, nature's telling us <clears throat> more clearly day by day that that ain't so. Now, you mentioned laws, you know, property rights, governments, but perhaps the most abstract sort of human creation has been our monetary system. Uh, because without delving too deeply into the history of money, it started out as something very simple, functional, actually an extremely good idea to move us beyond simple barter. But the way that has evolved now, and particularly how it's run at the minute, it's for, forgetting all the psychological issues around, uh, you know, the notion of perpetual growth. And, you know, that's all that uh, governments really talk about today in the teeth of the financial crisis, got to get back to growth. There's the debt-based nature of money and our economic system mathematically it demands this constant growth so we've really created this huge you know weight around our necks which we could change in the blink of an eye we could just say that you know those debts are not don't mean anything they're not to be repaid just tear it all up you know it's just numbers on a screen just press delete but as long as we're in hock to this then this perpetual growth model is the only thing that we think will work there's still that underlying myth that, you know, growth is the solution to all our problems. I mean, the conventional response to unemployment is more growth. The conventional response to better schools is more growth. The conventional response to, you know, happier lives is is more growth. Even the, the conventional response to environmental problems, as bizarre as it 
sounds is more growth so that governments have you know more money to invest in environmental protection problems uh, to invest in renewable energies for individuals with higher incomes so that they can afford their own solar panels or to buy the more efficient car these types of things so uh, we're, we're still very much entrenched in this idea that growth is unquestionably good um, and it's seeming to be very hard to free ourselves from that assumption. Um, whether we do it rationally, um, as we hopefully will, um, or whether that happens almost of necessity in the sense that a post-growth society is not voluntarily embraced but in, in, instead imposed upon us, well, how it plays out remains to be seen. But looking at the world today, looking at the response to the GFC, one gets the suggestion that giving up growth isn't going to be a voluntary transition, in which case we're going to have to deal with it being, you know, the limits to growth being imposed upon us. Like all things, it would be far better if we plan for these types of things. In the absence of that planning and in the absence of that voluntary transition, what will remain is for, is for those, you know, for, is for us to try to, to deal with the absence of that voluntary transition. Um, and in a sense, perhaps that's what we're seeing today. Um, there are people, you know, Richard Heinberg, uh, among others, who feel that we have, you know, the limits to growth that were talked about in 1972 by the Club of Rome uh, have actually been reached and that um, the global economy will be more or less plateauing for some indeterminate amount of time after which it will contract, whether we want it to or not. Uh, but, you know, the response to the GFC and to other energy issues and economic problems has been, as you mentioned earlier, to get the growth model back on track as fast as possible. But the growth model on a finite planet is inherently unsustainable. So the, the challenge will be not to try to fix the growth model, but to move beyond the growth model. Again, politically, that doesn't seem to be digestible, and it seems to me that most cultures aren't yet ready for it, in the sense that if a politician were to come out and say, we're going to move toward a, a degrowth economy or a steady-state economy, then they would have a, a great challenge selling that to a voting public. Well, essentially, they just wouldn't get elected. It's, you know, people want to be told what they want to hear, uh, even if you know, subconsciously they realise that things are, are very different. And I think that touches upon the, the, one of the key issues here, you know, perhaps the most fundamental one, and that is the psychological issues here. You know, our collective unconscious, what we believe, uh, what we think, quite often at odds with how things actually are but it's an enormous hurdle to overcome i think people adapting to different patterns of consumption and energy energy use would be physically very doable we've seen a lot of different um types of societies over the millennia this you know the one we have now is not the gold standard necessarily but i think it's in our minds i think that's the real battleground yeah i would agree it's certainly part of the battleground and uh, you're quite right you know, for millennia, there have been philosophers telling us that our attitudes matter. 
um, how we experience the world is partly in our control. And if we, uh, we can be victims of our attitudes or we can be beneficiaries of them. And currently when people conceive of the good life, they conceive of a high consumption, energy intensive life. And they think that if they don't achieve that or if that's going to be taken away from them, uh, then therefore they are having the good life taken away from them. And so far as those attitudes persist, then it follows that the transition away from industrial high consumption cultures uh, is going to be experienced as loss and deprivation and sacrifice. But if we rethink that conception of a good life, if we think about, well, what does the good life really consist in? Is it limitless consumption or does was abundance, true abundance, a state of mind? Are, are the good things in life really free? Um, once we've attained our mater basic material needs, perhaps we should be directing our energies away from limitless material growth, material consumption, and to seek the good life in non-material sources of meaning and well-being and fulfillment whatever they may be. It may be more time with family. It might be personal development. It might be more time reading. It might be more time dedicated to home production. It might be more time with community engagement, or spiritual contemplation or political activity. Um, there are any number of forms of fulfilling non-materialistic ways to live um, once that sort of those basic needs have been met. And I guess one of the, the points I'm trying to make in this book is to highlight that we can live well with much less than what most people in the first world have. And it sort of applies just as well to other parts of the world insofar as trying to reconceive what other parts of the world think of as progress. Um, because if the, the global south aspires to turn itself into the global north, then that is a ecological catastrophe in the waking, waiting and which is currently attempting to unfold. So just as the first world or you know, the, the high consumption lifestyles need to be reconsidered and to move toward a, an economy or a, or a lifestyle of sufficiency, so too do those in the poorest parts of the world who quite justifiably want to increase their material standard of living. But that those forms of development mustn't aspire to the high consumption lifestyles, but to some notion of sufficiency, so that middle way between overconsumption and underconsumption. And, uh, you know, returning to the idea of how important our attitudes are and mindful, mindfulness in these types of transitions. The great ancient Chinese philosopher Lao Tzu once said, he who knows he has enough is rich, uh, which is interesting because it, it raises the point that Wealth isn't a quantity of material goods, but, you know, sort of a conception of how much is needed. And just as he who knows he has enough is rich, it also implies, interestingly, that he who has enough but does not know it is poor. And it can be argued that many people in the, the rich world today who have everything they could possibly need in a material sense, and yet still feel dissatisfied, eternally dissatisfied, despite their abundance, because they are constantly seeking more, however much they may have. Now, even if industrial civilization and the 
advance of technology had delivered on its promise. That is to say, uh, you know, that we would all be having increasing leisure time and the mundane tasks that uh, most of us don't really like you know, to do, that those would be automated. And, we, you know, we'd all be living, you know, in a sort of Jetsons type techno utopia, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, even if that had happened, it wouldn't have taken away the, you know, the fundamental issues that, uh, and in the book, uh, the citizens in Entropia, they go about redesigning their their food systems, how they do clothing, housing, transport, the whole gamut. And the main issue really is that they all contrast with the way we currently do things. Nothing is really the same model. It's kind of is a fundamental reinvention or perhaps, you know, going back to how things previously were done. So all the fundamentals that we have in industrial civilization really are built on sand. And I think the fact that we're not living in that techno-utopia now is kind of sending out signals to people. There is something wrong here. This isn't the future we ordered. Yeah, you're quite right. And I decided to write the Entropia book when I was reading a, a book called Ecological Utopias by Marius de Groot. Uh And he he uh, distinguishes utopias of sufficiency from utopias of abundance. And almost all utopias have been utopias of abundance, in which, like you say, everyone's rich, uh, technology has solved all problems and has automated all those mundane tasks. Uh, and, you know, I wanted to write a sort of a, a utopia of sufficiency in the tradition of William Morris and Henry Thoreau, but to contextualize it in, you know, in 21st century um, issues of, of decarbonization in particular, and to try to conceive of a utopia of sufficiency uh, that has tried to wean itself off fossil fuels, and to make the point that it is possible for us to move away from these high consumption, high energy and resource intensive lifestyles. And however much we, we, we give up in that transition, there is the prospect of having so much more return to us. Um, and this arises out of a particular conception of human beings and the good life that I've been sort of talking about throughout our talk today. And it's the idea that you know every human being wants their basic needs met, but once those basic needs are met, um, there is the possibility of, of infinite variety of good, happy, meaningful, fulfilling lives that can be lived um, on those basic needs. We don't need all of the, 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 the global travel or the global trade or the gadgets to live good, fulfilling, dignified lives. Um, and in that sense, I see that there need not be any deprivation or sacrifice in the transition away from those high consumption lifestyles. Certainly there are many things that we need to give up, but for everything we give up, if it's done wisely, if the transition is negotiated thoughtfully and wisely, we will have so much more return to us. I, I'm convinced that there is a better way to live than the high consumption consumerist fossil fuel based model. Um, the question is how that transition is going to play out, and um, that remains to be seen. The concept of entropy is sort of an example of what's known as a resource-based economy. That is to say, you work with what you've actually got, not with what you'd like, and that you sort of take stock of what you have and then look at ways of 
using that sustainably so that it, you know that can keep you going indefinitely and not just to sort of burn through it and then say okay now what do we do and if people sort of google resource-based economy they'll pretty quickly come across uh, the Venus Project and the Zeitgeist Movement and most people are probably aware of, of what these guys are doing and their vision of the future is certainly utopian but um, I mean aesthetically, materially um, it's it looks more, how shall I say, certainly much more equal than the society we have now but it does seem to me and I've sort of I've been along to a lot of their meetings and looked at a lot of their material it does seem to be uh, entirely unrealistic because it is that view that it's technology is going to fix everything and it doesn't really address even though they advocate you know as you know working with what they've got it just doesn't seem that that's what you know the world's going to look like 100 years from now yeah i can't say i'm overly familiar with zeitgeist but i'm i, I know the movement and have listened to some of the talks and read some of the literature um, and my impression was exactly that, that sort of their, their critique seemed relatively well made and well directed, but the conception of the alternative struck me as wildly uh, techno-optimist. Technology is an ambiguous term because the bone that was used as a needle is technology. The, the walking stick is technology in the sense of a, a tool that we use to help us live our lives. And so, so we will always have technology, even in the, the sustainable society, the justice society, human beings will still use technology. The question is, um, you know, uh, some of the theorists use the term appropriate technology. And to at, at the moment, if we can do something, it seems as if we, we feel we should. But the question is, you know, just because we can do something doesn't mean we should. And um, it's a matter of perhaps thinking a bit more carefully about what technologies we use and to what end we put those technologies. Because I, I comment in the book that even if we were to transition to a, a, an economy based on, say, purely renewables, wind power, solar power, hydropower, that, that changes the, the means of economic activity and it decarbonizes those means. But if it doesn't change the end, then we may be no better off. Uh, obviously, if we decarbonise, we're better off in that sense. But a, a rainforest that's cut down with a, a chainsaw that was charged with renewable energy doesn't regrow any faster, and the biodiversity isn't affected any less just because the bulldozers ran on corn ethanol. Not only do we need to use appropriate technologies, but we also need to direct those technologies to sustainable and just ends. And I think um, one of my worries in the in the debate over renewables is that we get too focused on the attempt to decarbonise our economies, which is obviously a urgent and necessary part of the transition to a sustainable economy. But we can't just decarbonise; we actually have to rethink the growth model itself, because a growth model that still that is run on re renewable energy is still a growth model. And on a finite planet, that remains um, unsustainable by definition. Now, one of the things that struck me about the zeitgeist movement and similar sort of utopian visions is where are all the belief systems? Where are the ideologies, the prejudices, the religion, the racism, all these other things that we contend with in global society? They, they're part of the 
the aspect I mentioned earlier, the psychological aspect, and those can present enormous um, hurdles for us to get across in all of this because, you know, what Zeitgeist, for example, um, is trying to do is just to be an, you know, dispassionate uh, view of where we are, where we want to be, how we can get there. And whether it's a political system, as I say, or whether it's fundamental religion, whatever, there's lots and lots of uh, psychological barriers for us to uh, cross. Yeah, and I think will be one of the greatest challenge that, challenges that will be put to communities and nations and the human community more generally in coming years is in the face of crisis, how do we respond? Do we close up? Do we look purely to our own neighborhoods or to our own families and try to take what we need as desperately and as violently if need be? Or do we respond differently and more nobly and try to say, well, we're all in the boat, we're all in this together. We have to find out ways as a community to deal with these issues because it's no good being the one person at the end of the street with all the stuff if the community around you is, is collapsing. So it will be a challenge and how we respond is ultimately up to us. And, you know, there are signs... There are signs of hope and there are signs of despair. That's a testament to our our freedom and how we exercise that freedom is one of you know the, the great ethical challenges that we as individuals and as communities and as nations are gonna face when further crises strike because it seems to me that, you know, for the reasons we've talked about, growth the growth model is coming to an end whether we want it or not. Presuming we don't voluntarily transition away then we are going to grow ourselves to crisis. And perhaps that's where we are at now, in which case, you know, we aren't going to be having some smooth transition to the sustainable and just society, if that transition occurs at all. But it's going to be one, as we talked about, punctuated with with crises. I think in terms of seeing how we might deal with some of the uh, crisis situations that we've been speaking about and perhaps being there now I think there are a lot of things happening in the world at the minute that are direct manifestations of, of what we're talking about they're just not being seen that way they're not being called honestly and I think you can look at for example what's happening in Egypt now and you can make the case that that's got to do with energy and resources the problems in that country at their root do not have a political solution and that's what we're seeing now is the you know change of government, the military coup that's just happened. Basically, Egypt has got enormous population expansions been happening and projected to go on. They're importing increasing amounts of food. They basically can't feed themselves. Um, greater numbers of the, I think it was 40% of the population live below the poverty line on two or three dollars a day. And their oil resources have gone down greatly. They've sold most of it. They can no longer pay their international debts and put all that together and you've got a problem that does not have a political solution. And I think that people keep one eye on that. And the Middle East is particularly affected by this because they've got, you know, real problems with growing food and with water. And some of them have still got tons of oil, of course, and that's fine and dandy. But I, I think really that's what you're seeing. Yeah, and I guess the broader point is that energy descent uh, or you know, reaching the limits to growth are going to have political implications. When economies stop growing and debts stop being repaid and people find themselves in dire economic straits, 
this provides some of the cultural foundations for political unrest and it could well be what we you know should expect to see more of as economies stagnate and contract uh, as energy surpluses dry up uh, as economies stop growing as economies contract these have political implications when people are hungry they're more likely to go to the streets and like you say it could be what we're seeing in Europe and you know in Greece and Spain different parts of the world are in the process of experiencing arguably the implications of an, an, an economic system running up against its limits it could be a sign of things to come even in places that we don't currently expect in, in the in the more stable traditionally Western societies. Perhaps some we should uh, wrap up today just on a, a hopeful note, because really, if we don't believe that there is a positive future for us, then kind of like, what's the point? And it's in our human nature, I think, to to be optimistic. And it's just a case now, really, can we stop being blindly optimistic? Can we just a different type of uh, optimism and hope for the future? I mean, what, what do you see out there really as, as, as positive developments? I'm... Speaking from Australia, and we are soon to be uh, having an election, and the the evidence so far seems to suggest that Tony Abbott of the Liberals is going to be voted in, and he's uh, not hasn't got a progressive bone in his body. And what this suggests to me is that all of these problems that we have been talk, talking about are off the radar in terms of the 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 political culture in Australia, but also in, in Britain, as far as I can tell, and in the States and in Western Europe and all of these advanced industrial nations, the political culture, in the, in the, by which I mean top-down political culture, parliament, the executive, the judiciary, don't seem to be thinking about responding to these uh, crises, at least you're not trying to transition away from the model that has caused them but it's trying to fix the model that has caused them, but it's trying to fix an unfixable model. And so uh, my point is that if it's the case that we're not going to get these transitions from the top down, it follows that the solution, if there is to be one, must be driven from the grassroots from below. And the most inspiring uh, movements that I see emerging you know, out of the UK where you, you are is the transition towns movement because it seems to me that that type of model of social change where communities get together and enjoy the process of transition by reskilling, by growing their own food, by um, enjoying the process of education and, and, and finding fulfillment in community and engagement, um, it strikes me that that type of model is is, is the most likely means of bringing about the social change that, that we need. And although the transition movement, although expanding and although doing a lot, it still remains a, quite a small subculture. Um, but what gives me greatest hope is thinking of you know historical social movements, take the civil rights movement, for example, People sitting around in their garages in the early 50s could not have imagined what would have occurred by the middle of the 60s, only 15 years later. As promising as the transition movement is, at the moment it's not making a huge amount of impact at the structural level. 
But if we imagine the transition movement as being very much in its infancy, and that if we are to transition away from the growth model and the industrial model that we've been talking about, that transition movement has to somehow enter the mainstream and transform the mainstream, and then at that stage, there may be hope of changing the structures of society because it's ultimately those structures that need to be changed. Uh, changing the culture within a, a growth a model and structures of growth aren't going to solve our problems. So it's not enough to try to escape the system. Ultimately, the political goal must be to transform the system. And while the transition movement at the moment is often criticised as being apolitical in the sense that it doesn't you know, campaign for a political party. I think that is strategic in the sense that the culture needs to change before there is any hope of top-down political change. As I said, in Australia, we are about to have narrow-minded conservatives who isn't going to solve but only exacerbate all of the problems we've been talking about. So to try to wait for our politicians to do something well that's not going to happen to try to do it to, to try to bring about the change at the personal level that will f seem overwhelming but the trans the transition movement is saying well what if we came together as a community as a neighborhood as a street as a suburb as a city or a town what if we came together at the grassroots level and say well we're going to have to do this ourselves and we can have fun doing it um, and the transition movement is providing many inspiring examples of, of, of the, the first steps in the transition taking place. Um, and like I say, if I think, you know, we need to imagine, we need to envision the transition movement expanding, organizing, radicalizing, and then once that's happened, that's when we can hope that perhaps the strictures of society uh, will change and we move towards something other than the growth model. We, we decarbonize, we relocalize economies. And a very strong motivation for writing Entropia was to ask the question, well, what would life look like if the transition movement succeeded? Entropia is the best answer I can offer. Well, just in closing, Sam, perhaps you'd like to share, once again, details of the book, websites, just anything else you'd like to put out there. Uh, so the book's called Entropia. Uh, it's available at its website, uh, entropia.com. Uh, I blog at thesimplicitycollective.com, and my academic essays are listed at uh, thesimplicityinstitute.org uh, with my colleagues. Uh, Dr. Simon Usher and Dr. Ted Trainer, uh, and we talked a lot about um, attitudes and mindfulness today. And readers, uh, listeners might be interested in looking at some of Mark Birch's work on the Simplicity Institute website, who has done some really magnificent, deep, profound work on mindful sufficiency and the importance of, of mindfulness in this transition. So, um, I'd encourage you to. Look at, look at the Simplicity Institute website. I hope your listeners find things there that they enjoy and are enriched by. Excellent. Well, Sam, once again, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Nice speaking with you, Greg. Well, folks, that's it for another week. As ever, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy the show, please check out the website. That's LegalizeFreedom.com. 
legalize-freedom.com, where you'll find an archive of programs offering alternative views on a wide range of topics, including world affairs, politics and economics, science and technology, religion and spirituality, conspiracy, and alternative history. You can also browse and buy a range of books and DVDs from our guests, and if you're feeling generous, make a donation to help keep the site up and running. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to LegalizeFreedom.com.